0: the idea that you could find a path that makes the more essential things in your life easier and that somehow that might be advantageous, uh, you know, is to me is a compelling proposition.
1: I'm Rufus Griscom and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, can success be effortless? Back in the 1950s, a British industrialist named Henry Kramer became obsessed with the idea of human powered flight. So obsessed that he offered a 50,000 pound prize to the first team that could build a human powered aircraft and fly it in a figure eight around two pylons spaced a half mile apart. Now, let's keep the historical context in mind here. Like I said, this is in the 1950s, 1959 to be exact. That means it was more than a half century after the Wright brothers took their famous 12-second flight, Chuck Yeager had already broken the sound barrier, passenger planes routinely crossed the Atlantic, and NASA was tantalizingly close to shooting a man into space. Building a flying bicycle should have been, well, as easy as riding a bike. One team after another tried to capture Kramer's prize. They built intricate flying machines out of wood and metal and heavy-duty plastic. But in 17 years, not a single one succeeded. Then along comes an American model plane enthusiast named Paul McCready. He had a hunch about why all those fancy teams came up short. They were trying to solve the wrong problem, he thought. They were asking, how can we build the perfect flying machine But what they should have been asking, McCready realized was how do you build a plane that you can crash, repair, and redesign as quickly as possible? He decided to answer his own question. Along with a ragtag team, he built what was basically an oversized model airplane that has bike pedals attached to the propeller. They called it the Gossamer Condor. And just like McCready promised, it was a cinch to crash and repair. If the aluminum frame snapped, they'd get a broom handle and some duct tape and put it all together again. An accident like that would keep another team grounded for the better part of a year. It only slowed McCready down for five minutes. In just a few months, the Gossamer Condor took 222 flights. Sometimes it took more flights in a day than the competitor's planes took in their lifetimes. And after each of those flights, McCready and his crew were able to tinker, redesign, shave off weight, and fine tune the aerodynamics. Dawn. August 23rd, 1977. And McCready, as usual, is making changes right up to the last minute. That's a clip from a documentary called The Flight of the Gossamer Condor. At 7.30 a.m., the breeze stills. The pilot pedals the plane down a long, wide runway. Its wings, which stretch out 96 feet, wobble, even in the absence of a breeze. Then, suddenly, the gossamer condor is aloft. The gossamer condor swings its huge wing around the first turn with ease. The plane coasts a few feet off the ground. Men ride alongside it on bicycles, shouting encouragement. Six minutes and two turns later, the only obstacle left is the 10-foot finish pole. Man-powered flight has become a reality. (laughs) McCready won the first Kramer Prize. He would go on to win a second two years later when a similar contraption he built flew across the English Channel. He succeeded where others failed, not because he had the most sophisticated design or high-tech components. In fact, he had the opposite. He succeeded, in the words of author Greg McEwen, because he dared to be rubbish. He made failure as cheap and easy as possible. If he had chased perfection, he probably would have given up. Instead, he tried again, failed again, and fail better. Daring to be rubbish is one of the core principles in Greg's new book, Effortless, make it easier to do what matters most. Greg says that we often think the route to success is to push ourselves harder, but what we should be doing is looking for an easier path. In this episode, we're doing something new. What you're about to hear is a recording of a book launch event that Greg did recently with his friend John Acuff, who's a writer, speaker, and the author of the recent book Soundtracks, The Surprising Solution to Overthinking. They spoke on Zoom with some members of the Next Big Idea Club community.
2: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
0: By the way, you do sound quiet to me, John. Do I sound quiet? Yeah, everyone's saying the same thing, uh, which, which is rare. That's rare, John.
3: Is, that, is it still quiet? It's getting a little getting, better for me. Getting a little closer. Do I have That's to just be like this? Now. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, right on yeah, that. I'm going to turn it, this it, mic here. There you, you go.
0: You, now, that, now, that you, now that we fluffed the beginning,
1: yeah, I just yeah. want to
0: talk about something in your book. I want to yeah. say, right, let's talk about soundtracks for a second. Mm-hmm. But in soundtracks, the whole point of soundtracks, which everybody should go and buy that book, is that you're trying to get rid of all of the overthinking, all the unhelpful thinking in your head and replace it with a new soundtrack that is, you know, that, that that's more helpful, better to listen to and so on. But one of the soundtracks, one of my moments of like meeting of the minds between effortless and, and soundtracks is that you chose a new soundtrack for writing. And, and I thought this was worth sharing because, you know, like most of the time when people think about writing and many writers themselves sort of talk about writing in a very particular way, how painful yeah. it is. You know, it's all this blood, sweat, and tears. There's a quote, I can't remember exactly. Oh, the quote is,
3: you know, writing is easy. All you do is open a vein and bleed on the page. Like we over-dramatize an already difficult thing. Like we say, like when we describe going to write, like I got to go to the coal mine. If you ever met a real coal miner, they should punch you in the mouth because <laughs> yeah. like it's, it's such a crazy thing. thing to say.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I love that distinction. And then you chose one, a new line a new soundtrack yep. and it was it was light and easy mm-hmm. i want you to like talk about that i want you to talk about it because yep. i feel like it's a great crescendo like overlapping between these two books and, and i
3: texted you when i saw the beginning of your book because you had that in the very the dedication is that idea and unbeknownst it was just a meeting of the minds so four years ago my wife said Um, as I started to write this book, you're a jerk for the two years when you write a book and you're a jerk for the two years when you sell a book. And that's not it. Like, that's not how this marriage is going. I'd rather you be a happy plumber than a miserable writer. So we need a new approach. And I had to say, okay, I tend to over-dramatize writing. I use chaos and crisis and anxiety to amp myself up to do it. And it makes me miserable to be around. So I said, okay, I'm going to this-
0: if you're bad for the two years while you're writing and the two years you're marketing, that's the whole life, man.
3: There was a weekend, like a three-day weekend when I was pleasant, like I was nice to be around. But other than that, it was not great to be part of this orbit. Yeah. And so I said, okay, I'm going to actively work to make this process light and easy. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm going to write a new soundtrack because my big belief is your thoughts turn into your actions, turn into your results. And so I loved that you had this light and easy approach too. So when I read effortless, I said, oh, I think there's a lot of people that think it has to hurt to be good, you know, no pain, no gain. So I want you to segue from that into, okay, what if it could be effortless? Why do we have such a hard time believing that something of value could also be something of ease?
0: I think there's a, there's a few reasons, but one is like puritanism, you know, sort of just deep in the culture still, that says, look, you know, anything worth doing has to be incredibly hard. Uh, it, says, it says, you know, that hard, hard work is a virtue, which I think there is some truth to all of, you know, the, the hard work is a virtue, but they also went beyond that to say that we should distrust the easy. And, and our language shows this, blood, sweat, and tears, a hard day's work. Uh, you know, on the other hand, there's easy money, the easy way out. And so it, it, it creates this false dichotomy And the idea that there's a third alternative, that you could find a path that makes the more essential things in your life easier and that somehow that might be advantageous, uh, you know, is to me is a compelling proposition. It's like a new mindset that you need to have to get there. But in fact, when you look at like all the top performance uh, you know, expertise over the last 20 years, what we've learned is that this is, of course, what, what is necessary to be at your very best. And so you can see that within sports. You can see it within, within career. You can see it within almost any field of endeavor. Uh, and, so, and so just, you know, it's, it's like a new mantra, maybe maybe it wasn't just the maybe maybe it was like the uh, the 80s motivational speakers that did it to us maybe it's not just puritanism maybe it's the 80s you know it's just give everything if you do everything you can have yeah. everything you know and that sort of messaging i think is is a bit of a bill of goods uh, we've been a little bit conned and so we have to discover there's this there's this other alternative and, and effortless is an attempt at that
3: so what would you say to somebody because i think that's 100% true say i you know i say to you Greg, but I've been taught that if your dream doesn't scare you, it's not big enough. Cause I think that's related to that. So I say like, but I find something I really enjoy. I feel good at it. I'm developing proficiency. I'm seeing results, but it doesn't feel like it counts because it really, it doesn't scare me. Is it big enough? I think, I think big enough is, is related to this.
0: I think that there is something about you're talking specifically big, And and I just want to speak just, again, a little broader on, like, just people, when they find something easy, often don't think it's valuable. This fun thing, this thing that comes naturally to me, that you can't build a career around that. We've got to go do it, build something around something that's hard for me. For it to be valuable, it has to be hard for me, which is, like, really backwards thinking. Value isn't about how hard it is for you. Value is in the eye of the beholder. It's for somebody else. And so, you know, sometimes I think people choose – career paths and design their lives around things that are like completely the wrong areas. Uh, you want to build it around something that that is enjoyable. I mean, it's going to be hard enough anyway. The hard
3: will to, be there. Don't worry. You don't have to add it. Like you don't it have will, to, welcome to the planet.
0: That's it. Life is, this is the context. Life is hard and the complication is we make it harder than it needs to be. And the implication of that is we're going to burn out before achi- achieving the important results we're trying to achieve. So my position in effortless is we can make a different choice, that we can seek out this path that makes the essential things easier. And as a result of that, you can achieve breakthrough results, but without burning out. And I think that's so relevant right now, because I basically think there's two kinds of people in the world, right? There's people who are burned out, and there are people who know they are burned out.
3: Uh, and, and, and then their hope is that there can be somebody who is effortless.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you can get into the second category, I think what, what is possible is that you start saying, well, look, I can't work any harder. So I, I have to find an easier path. This way of just powering through is what got me here to this pain point. And after 16 months of the pandemic, I think there's a lot of people that have achieved results, but through grinding effort. And it's like, yeah, that's, I can't do that for the next 16 months. I've got to find a different way to do, a different way to be. And, and, and I think that there's some, some insights and effortless could be useful.
3: Where do you see people that, you know, I think it's better if you can choose effortless versus you come to the end of a thing. But mm-hmm. if I'm, you know, if I'm starting to sense that I'm burned out and I want to choose effortless, what does that look like?
0: Well, I think that it reminds me of somebody that uh, I did a little coaching with. She's a manager at um, university. She's at BYU. She's the kind of person who's really conscious of, of working hard. Okay, that's a good thing. But she's gone beyond the place of usefulness. It's beyond even diminishing returns. It gets to negative returns for her. She's the type of person who, if she even eats lunch, she feels guilty. Not, not I don't mean like takes time away for lunch, I mean just even eats it. That's because if she's not exhausted, she's not doing enough. This is the archetype that that you know of, of how she is, where she is in her world. And I, I thought, well, if I I gotta be careful even how I teach effortless because I could overwhelm her even with that. And I thought, okay, what's one concrete thing that she can do? And I, I just said, look, let's let's start with asking a new question you know, questions are answers. And if you can ask a new question, you can find a new answer, a new way of going about things. I said, the next time somebody asks you to do something, just pause and say, well, how could this be effortless? How could it be easier? What might an easy solution look like? So a professor calls and says, look, I need you to get your videography team to come over and record my class for the semester. In her head, she's going, okay, we're gonna get a whole team involved. We'll have multiple angles. We'll edit it all together. We're going to have intros and outros, graphics, music. And she's just seen this whole thing. I'm going to wow him. So impressive. And then she remembers, OK, hold on. I'm not supposed to go down that path anymore. What might an easy solution be? And so it turns out when she asks that question, it's for one student. This whole thing is one student who's going to miss some classes for an athletic commitment. And the solution they come up with is another student in the class will just record it on their phone and send it to him after class for the ones that he misses. The professor who hasn't seen that solution, either hasn't thought about it, is delighted. He's not like disappointed. He's like, yeah, fantastic. One less thing for me to have to worry about. He goes away happy and she gets off the phone and she's just like, what just happened? Like I saved four months of headaches for an entire team because I asked one new question. I know that life isn't always going to be like that. But here's what I know is if you don't ask the question, you're not going to find the answer. So this is a different path. Instead of saying, how can I work harder to achieve my results? You say, look, is there a different, easier, smarter approach that will help me to get those results with with, with a tiny percent of the energy?
3: And I would argue there usually is. And I think do you feel like one of the things that gets in the way of us asking that question is we feel lazy to even ask it or feel like it's, it's cutting corners? Is that one of the things that gets in our way? I
0: think so. I think, again, it comes back to this false dichotomy that you think it's either essential and hard or trivial and easy. And if you think it's those two things and you're driven as an overachiever, then you're going to tend to do a lot more of the first. And you're going to Have that paradigm become dominant, a dominant assumption in your life, a a mindset that says everything has to be on that side of things. And and sometimes for others that maybe aren't so overachieving or they're not so wound that way, sometimes they'll even get to the point where they think about an essential task, their their exercise, um, their health, their key relationships, the things they know are essential. And it will overwhelm them before they get to it. Just the thought of it, oh, I really should eat healthy. I really should eat but oh, that's just, oh, that's just overwhelming. That's just... And so oh, it's like within a heartbeat, they're doing fast food again, because yeah, it's trivial, but it's so easy. And so they, they, they're they going to get pulled to the easy. So that's an alternative path. I was just coaching somebody. Well, I say coaching, thats not quite right. I was on their podcast and I was doing like a, a turn the tables, do a little intervention with them. As asking him a few questions. I said, what's essential for you that you're under-investing in? And that's, that's what he said. He said, eating healthy. Uh, and we went through a few questions. I said, well, what does, how can we make it effortless? And he thinks for a minute. He goes, well, you know, if I could get one of these apps that does food delivery, you know, just to the office here. He says, what normally happens is I get hungry, don't eat. it gets into the afternoon. It's three o'clock. I'm so hungry. I don't have any resilience now, and I'll just go get fast food. So if the food could arrive when I was first hungry and it's healthy... And this app would do it. Uh, I said, "I said, okay, what's the very first physical step? You know, you can take the obvious thing. And he said, okay, I can search on Google to find one of the, you know, whatever app would work best for me in this area. I said, what could you do in the first 10 minutes And a microburst? If you spent 10 minutes after that first action. And he, he literally said, well, I think I can set the whole thing up. I Put my credit card in, put what days I want it, press go, done. 10 minutes. It, it was like this weird moment because he physically changed. He, he was like, you could see him just go, yeah, I can do that. But you could tell it was doable. And that's what happens. You get at ease because you say, this is, this is possible. And, and, and I said, well, how long have you been worried about this? Like how He says, 20 years I've struggled with this. 20 years versus 10 minutes. Yeah. And, and so maybe it sounds all too good to be true, but I mean, that's the thing. It's like unthinkably simple, this question, this approach, but that's why it works. And so a few questions in a row there. And now he has a solution in 10 minutes to a problem that he's been stressed about, worrying about, but procrastinating for 20 years.
3: Do you think perfectionism comes into this? Because I'll, you know, I always say like, perfectionists in your life have the messiest offices and the messiest cars. And you think, well, no, they don't, they're type A. But a perfectionist, if they can't clean it down to the toothbrush level, won't even start anything. They have like empty water bottles, like a possum family in the corner. Like it's a messy situation. And like perfectionists I meet would rather get a zero than a C minus. So they'll say, I want to run three miles every day. Today, I only have time for two, so I'm not going to do any. That person could have easily said, Well, Greg, I want to eat better. So I'm going to get a scale and I'm going to start measuring whey and I'm going to get a caveman diet and I'm going to get a special bike they only make in Bulgaria. And I'm going to like, and they can overcomplicate. So does perfectionism get into this? And what do you say to somebody whose tendency is to overcomplicate the simple?
0: hundred percent and now this is a phrase I didn't put it in the book and and you can't overuse this either. it could be misunderstood easily but for a perfectionist this is for real right If it's worth doing it's worth doing poorly and and that that just as an interrupt because if you're someone who operates at a high standard, even your poorly won't be that bad. Yeah. And so you've got to get yourself out of the state, of like constantly accelerating on your standards when you're already high standard. And so, so that's sort of one idea, a different way of saying that similar thing a different soundtrack is to have the courage to be rubbish. Yep. Uh, this is one of my favorite ideas because everything starts rubbish, whether it's writing. I mean, this is so true. Everything, it, it, there's no writer that writes the first draft, and it's just
3: fantastic. I hate to Everything tell you this, Greg, done. that I, I wrote this book directly. They just give me the covers. Like they give me a bunch of hard covers. It goes right in. And I go, wow, that was, that was, is that, did I drink a ton? Cause Hemingway did that. And I own a bunch of six toed cats. That's the other thing. That's my process. Like I didn't want to share my process. Cause it's a secret, but no, you're right. You're a hundred percent right. Because like one of my soundtracks is never hold a first draft to final draft standards. So if you hold the first draft, the final draft standards, you're screwed. Like you're 100% screwed. And that I 100% agree with that.
0: And, and building on that, right, like we, we went just even one step further when I was writing effortless. We said like zero draft. Write a zero draft. The zero draft, no one has to see. Actually, no one will see. But it's like, just do it. You've got to have the courage to be rubbish if you want to get anywhere else. One of the ways that I applied this, once I really named it, was I said, <laughs> this is a funny way to say it, but I start a podcast about about a year ago, not quite yet. It's the middle of the pandemic. We'd scheduled that we'd organize the whole thing before the pandemic, and then the pandemic happens and we're like, okay, well, the whole plan is out. What do you do? Do you wait, you're trying to do it perfectly, do you wait? If we don't try to do it perfectly, there would literally not be a podcast now. There wouldn't, it wouldn't exist. And so instead, we said, "Okay, we're going to use this rubbish equipment because you couldn't even buy equipment." And I was rubbish too because I I didn't I didn't know what I was doing. And so it was like either do you're either going to do to learn or you can try and learn to do, and and both have their place. But this was like a do to learn strategy, and to me, that's what like that was rubbish it, it, it is kind of about. And and so I mean, this is a, this is all like backdoor brag here, but but just like two weeks ago, it hit like top ten on self-improvement podcast Apple Amazing. We could go top five. And that's like, I don't want to overstate this, but it's almost like the first piece of good news about the podcast in all that time, in a sense, mm-hmm. it's just yeah. been like a sense of like, Hey man, we just, we're just learning. This is pretty rubbish. We don't know what we're doing. Like we're yeah. just, that's not false modesty. It's like, uh, well, we'll try it this way. We'll try it that way. We we'll, we'll changed the name of the podcast at one point. We're like, we don't know. But like, if you want to make progress, you've got to get yourself out of, perfectionism space because you won't like mistake free living is a very bad idea.
3: Yeah. And it's not, it's not enjoyable and living to prevent future regret is not enjoyable. Like I got to make so many right decisions. I can't regret this later. Like that's not an enjoyable way. One of the things you say in your book is the 10 to 20%. We want to have a 10 to 20% error because it means we're going quick. And I thought there's such freedom in that. Cause I think when we look I would say as an outsider looking at you, You got Matthew McGonaghy on the podcast, John Acuff. I mean, they're both a lot of people. (laughs) People will say like, whoa, he gets the big gets. That's Um, right. But looking on the outside, sold a million copies of the books. People would think Greg doesn't do rubbish. Like there's no way he accepts that. or like, So to hear you say the opposite and go, yeah, we felt like we were making up a lot of this. It's still kind of clunky. I think there's a lot of freedom in that.
2: Learn more at TIAA.org backslash Promises Pay Off.
1: I'm Rufus Griscom, and you're listening to The Next Big Idea. Let's get back to the conversation between Greg McEwen and John Acuff.
0: One of my favorite stories that came across in the research for for Effortless is the story of um, an industrialist in the U.K., uh, Henry Kramer who says I want to accelerate human powered flight so he thinks this is an achievable thing this is like 50 years after uh, you know after the Wright brothers I and mean, this is like this is like great time to set this prize 50,000 pounds 17 years go by and no one has achieved his the target which is to fly like I think a half a mile around these two pylons without you know assistance it's basically a bike with a wings that's what he's trying to say like this is This is what everyone's trying to solve. This is total failure until Paul McCready comes along. He's broke. He has no team compared to the competitors. The competitors have like well-funded teams. They're coming out the top institutions. Uh, The machines are elegant, beautiful, built, designed, crafted with wood and, and plastic and these slats and these ribs and this whole thing. And he's just like, everyone has been trying to solve the wrong problem. This is the breakthrough. He says they're all trying to build beautiful machines. He's like, The real problem is can you build a, a machine that you can crash cheaply? Can you build a machine that can be crashed, mended, and relaunched in a few minutes? That was the breakthrough. And his thing, you should see this thing. I mean, it's just like this is amateurish compared to the competitors. He said, He said, He's on record. He's like, He's like, you know, if this thing would crash, we'd get like a broom handle and tape. We'd stick it together again and we'd be up again. Within the same day, they would have maybe four or five crashes and flights within the same attempt. The competitors were taking six months between one crash. That's crazy. The difference is that he was able to crash and learn 222 times before he was successful in 223. And the big breakthrough, and then he went on to win the second prize, which is crossing the English Channel, same thing, uh, you know, two years later, following the same approach. This this idea of making failure as cheap as possible is key for making progress on the things that are essential to you. You're going to make failure cheap. And and there's a variety of ways you can do that. But if you can do that, if you can make learning-sized mistakes, then you can... I, you know, accelerate far faster than somebody else who's still sitting around. It has to be perfect. I know somebody who started, wanted to start a podcast the same week that I started the What's Essential the podcast. And they bought the equipment and they haven't started it a year on. Why? Because it's going to be perfect. They're overthinking it. They want it to be just so. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not really trying to knock them at all in saying it. I just want to contrast the power of finding this lower risk, lower, you know, get rid of the perfectionism Definitely progress over perfectionism if you actually want to make progress on the things that matter most to you.
3: I think there's certain things that cause, you know, certain endeavors. And a a friend of mine, I've been talking about this, where it triggers it really quickly, that fear. Um, And one is logos. I have a friend that I've been talking with and he wants to launch something, but he wants to get the logo right. And I've been telling him- Oh, logos. Logos, like like the the philosophers,
0: you know. Oh, no, gosh. I want to take 30.
3: this a little headier, Greg, no offense. <laughs> the airplane story wasn't smart enough. I mean, I heard the bike. I don't, nobody cares about bikes. I'm that's gonna, what yeah. I am going to say, but logos, I say I go he's logo. He's getting, no. I mean a logo, logo, like a shiny ornament you put on an envelope. No, right. But I told him like, call the logo, your year one logo. And I think that's part of one of the lies that prevents people from writing books, prevents people from building platforms, launching podcasts, whatever the people go. You have to find the perfect niche. You have to decide right now what the entire thing is going to be about. And you have to be about a certain type of bird that's only in a certain type of Oklahoma and have a niche. And you have to know for the next five years, that's your podcast. And you go, that that feels really intimidating. So how do you, on a practical level, say, you know, we use podcasts as an example. I'm watching this and maybe I want to write a book. I've always thought I want to write a book or I want to start a podcast. And, I, you know, what's the first step or what's the next step? So it's this weekend. Greg McEwen just got me excited. He's British, so I trust his ideas faster than John's. What do I do?
0: Well, I mean, l- l- let's ask a few questions to make execution easier. Uh, what does done look like for you? I just, just get clear about that. There's the most amazing story about this. Uh, I mean, I don't want to go too deep into this. But actually, I will because it's such a great little story. The Vasa is a ship that was built in Sweden. By the oh,
3: of Sweden. I love this story. So good.
0: He just keeps on changing the criteria for done. He never says what done is. Okay, first it has to be 65 feet long, then 75, then 135, then 165, in between people keep cutting logs. They keep doing, you know. eventually his changes are so stressful. It's said to have killed the shipmaker. And and then towards the end of the project or or what proved to be the end of the project is he said, listen, I just want to put on like 700 statues. Because it's just got grander and grander in his mind and bigger and bigger. And, uh, and, and they, they, did, they did this. The ship was never finished ever. But there was a date established for when the VIPs were going to come from all the other surrounding areas to see this juggernaut of a, of a ship. And so what is planned is that the ship is going to come out and sail, not properly tested, not you know, fully finished. And they're going to have a gun salute for all these VIPs. And so they do that. They come out. A gust of wind grabs the Vasa and pulls it over. And because all the cannons are open for this gun salute, the water just suddenly gets into it, pulls it down. Within one hour, the ship is, is, is at the bottom of the ocean, kills 53 people. And this thing that has taken years, decades to build uh, literally goes one mile and is, and is over. So This is the uh, dramatic example of like, what does done look like? Like actually choose. Okay. And it doesn't have to be the final, final thing, but like what is done and we're going to get there and then we're going to have learned and we'll get to the next level. So first question, what does done look like? Mm -hmm. Second question, what is the the first obvious step you can take on making progress? Not, Not the hundredth step, the very, very first one. So you say, hey, I want to write a book. Well, what the, no one writes a book. You cannot write a book.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You can open a Google Doc and start typing, right? Like that's a physical thing. You can open a Google Doc and name it. That is the first thing. Think of the very first physical step. Uh, my favorite example of this is uh, is, is uh, the co-founders of, um, of Netflix. They have this grand vision but like being able to download videos all over the world, they see this, but they know the technology isn't there. That could take 10 years to do it. Their approach could have been, listen, we're going to have a, have a 10 year business plan. We're going to raise a billion dollars. We're going to, which
3: would have been fictional by the way. If you think you can plan 10 years at a time, it's pure fiction. Like nobody planned 2020. Nobody was like, you know what? We got the greatest minds together. This is how 2020 like, Anytime somebody tells me their 10-year plan, I think that is so cute. That is just so cute.
0: To, to me, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to have long-term goals and intents. and sure. You've got to let them, you've, got, you've obviously got to have them in their place. And and so for, for them, what they finally decided they do, they say the very first obvious thing we can do is we're going to go and buy a CD. Like they literally go buy one, put it in an envelope at the post office and mail it to themselves to say, okay, can you get, a CD arrive without breaking it. Like, can you do that? Because if we can't, there's no point in even starting this business. Like that is the thing. And that was their first step. And they, you know, they found that that was, yes, it could be done. And they were like, okay, well maybe we have something. Maybe we have a disruption to Blockbuster. And of course they did. So I think that's the second question is what's the first physical thing you can do. I think the third thing that you can say is like, what is my, what's the, the pace I'm going to take? How can I find the effortless pace? And specifically what I mean by that is to have a lower bound, very minimal, very realistic, achievable lower bound. Like what if you said, like I, I, I saw a journal a while ago and I said, okay, minimum bound, one sentence a day. Upper bound is the key because as overachievers, we're like, well, you know, lower bound, fine, at least a sentence a day. But then the mistake we make is on the other side, we say, okay, well, this is day one, three pages in the journal. You start the book and day one, you're going to try Okay, I'm going to spend ten hours on this. That's what it takes. That's what that's what I've been told. I haven't given enough effort. I'm going to just go, go to crazy. the coal mine. Go to
3: that coal mine. Go
0: to the coal mine, and 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 then you you get to you know you get to end of day one. And of course, even if you did it, and even if you did make progress, what you've done is you've burned yourself out. It's too much. Day two, you're like, well, I, I, I can't do ten hours. It's too much, and so you burned yourself out psychologically before you even begun. So have an upper bound. So with the journal, mine was at five sentences. No more than five sentences until. This is such a deep habit that I, uh, that I never think of not doing it. And that was 10 years ago. And I think I'm pretty confident that I haven't missed one day in a journal in 10 years now. And that was because it was an upper bound. It's not because I, it's a superhuman effort. It's, it's, no, it's, not, it's not even in, in this sense impressive at all. It's just have an upper bound so that you can keep going with it.
3: I I love that. And I know that we've had some good questions. I don't want to hog all the time tonight with my, I mean, I think a lot of people find these to be amazing questions. um, So I feel good about them, but (laughs) are there any questions that we want to answer Uh, Panio? Are there any that you'd say, Oh, so-and-so asked a question. There's a great audience. I've already seen a bunch of fun
1: chats. One that I think is quite relevant is from Lisa Seidman. She says for me, work is my number one priority. When I finish with my day's work, I crash on the sofa playing a game on my iPad. How do I get motivated to tackle everything else on my to-do list instead of putting it off for days, weeks, months, and years?
3: That's a great mm. question. Greg, I, I look forward to your answer. <laughs> M- much like Lisa, I, I look forward to this.
0: Well, here's, here's when I hear that, I actually, there's a kind, kind, sort of a red flag in there, even about like work is the priority. I'm like, that, that catches me. I'm not saying, hey, you're wrong about that to do that, but it just catches me as like, oh, that's interesting. And if we were having a conversation, I'd want to double click on that, understand that a bit more. I, I, I think the thing I will say to you is that you want to be able to create like a slingshot life. And what I mean by that is that you work, yes, but then you need to have a period of recuperation uh, and that isn't just. I mean, I'm not. I'm also not knocking like spending some time on on whatever device. But like, if if you if a person is doing things in their relaxing time that doesn't really relax them, doesn't really give them recuperation, they won't spring forward. They won't feel like the next day full of energy. They just it'll get them in a slightly plateauing process. So what I would encourage people to do is to learn, especially for overachievers, to actually learn how to relax. The relaxing is a responsibility. And another way of saying that is that relaxing is a capability, like a competence. And for most overachievers, they have no competence. In this. Like they don't know how to do it. So the moment they're not working, which they do know how to do and they have competence for, it's actually a very uncomfortable experience. It's not something that, Oh, thank goodness I get to relax. It's like this, I don't know what to do here. Your so skin they, itches. You feel itchy. That's the main. Yes. Place. Yes. And so you want to get back to, I'll just check email again. I'll just go online. I'll just learn something. I'll just and do something, do more email. What I think you need to do is like start at zero, right? I don't know how to relax. Admit that. I don't know what to do. And you start making a list. My Anna and I, my wife and I have made a list now of 20 things. The first list wasn't super great specific list. Uh, but it was a list of things that relaxed and was rejuvenating to us. So her list is totally different to mine. Uh, and
3: what's on your list? Like, give us one on your list. The most private and personal, actually. <laughs> uh, I like playing tennis. That's
0: like a thing. I'm tennis. not. I'm not good. That's a great one. Uh, but I like playing tennis. Uh, my son plays tennis, and so and so he and I will we'll go. He'll 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 come in and tell me, Hey, do you want to go play tennis? And I'm not talking like go for a couple of hours. We'll go play for 15 minutes maybe. And so that is something that's relaxing for me. That's, that's fun and doing it with him. And this gives me an opportunity to make a distinction here too, between there's chores, there's habits, and then there's rituals. And those are three important distinctions. Chores are things that are important, but we don't like them at all. Uh, Habits are things that we might like or not like, but the point is, is that they're now routine enough that we don't have to think about whether we're going to do them or not. So that's the advantage of that. and and, but then that's different to rituals rituals are like habits with a soul habits are what you do rituals are how you do them and that really matters because what you can do if you can create the right rituals is that they're they're enjoyable in and of themselves you like doing them because they've become fun because they're something that uniquely for you they have a little signature to them the way you're doing that is fulfilling and so that can be applied beyond relaxing, but that's the idea is start a list of 20 things. and At first, they're just sort of items, things that you're observing about yourself. You have to have some self-awareness. But over time, Anna just gave me a list the other day of like, she got down to sort of five or six, and every one of those now are like really good. They've become little rituals. They're specific things that, that, that she can do. Uh, I mean, one of hers is, 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 is like dancing with me for a few minutes, not like for a long time, but just like a few minutes of dancing to connect. That's something that's on there. Uh, reading a specific fictional book, sitting in bed at a certain time, drinking tea. like That's a little ritual. Now, that doesn't actually sound good to me, to be honest. That's not on my list, but it's about finding those unique things that are like signature relaxing rituals. I think that's what you want to do when you're not in the work period. Get competent at work, get competent at relaxing in order to have this spring forward effect uh, in in your life.
3: I joke with Greg about that. like we're such a stressed out culture. We, we score our sleep. Like you can fail while you're asleep. You can wake up in the morning and already feel like a failure. Cause you go, man, I suck at sleeping. My sleep stats are all, I thought I was doing good. Look how bad I suck at sleep. So there's already enough pressure to that. You shouldn't add, like, we have to be the best at relaxing. And I, Greg and I joke about that. Cause My wife said I was a workaholic and I needed a hobby. And so I said, well, I like ping pong. Maybe that's on my list. And I ended up hiring a ping pong coach from the, you know, a certified ping pong coach. And I immediately sucked all the joy out of ping pong. I'm 45. What am I training for? Like the senior Olympics for ping pong? Like that's insane. And I had to go, oh, I did it again. I did the thing where I do a little and then I make it everything. So I think you can pace it. I love your use of the word pace.
1: Speaking of pacing ourselves, it's time for a quick break. When we come back, Greg and John share their recipes for beating burnout.
0: Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's chief product officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plat
1: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's
0: story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Okay, so I see here There's some people put stuff in the Q&A versus the chat. I somebody at Zoom needs to sort that out and just have one thing I feel like. Um, okay, when have you felt burned out in your careers? What has helped you to get back on your feet or become unburned out? John, over to you.
3: I'll start. I, um, I took four years between my last two books. I wrote a book called Finish about finishing goals because 92% of all New Year's resolutions fail and I was curious about that. And then I took too long between the books and I got creatively stuck. And so I did two things. I did a two night comedy show where I forced myself. I'd said for years, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I finally um, decided to do it. 60 minute comedy set took me months to write. And and then the, the other thing I did for burnout is um, learning to live within my limits, learning to not see a limit as failure, but as a limit as a gift. The limit mm-hmm. isn't failure, the limit's a gift. And so now mm-hmm. whether that's my body going, whoa, 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 we're getting closer to the edge. Whether that's my spouse going, hey, here's, you know, we're getting closer to to the edge or you're, you know, I kind of have a couple. And then in soundtracks, I think one of the best things in the book was something somebody else said, which I had a friend named David Thomas say, we want negativity and stress to be a switch. We want to find one switch and turn it off. And we think it'll be turned off forever. So we look for yoga and we do yoga for a month and then the stress comes back. So we go, no, I need another switch, another switch, another switch. And he said, life isn't a switch. Life is a dial. And when the dial gets to 11, you have the ability to turn it down. So what I teach and what I use in my own life are what I call turn down techniques, similar to Greg's list. That's why we have so much overlap and that's why it's so fun to support each other. I go, these are my turn down techniques. And when I find that life is at an eleven when I find like maybe I've made the book my identity and I'm wrapped up in it too tight. Maybe I've made reviews, my identity, success, my dinner, whatever. Mm. It's at an 11. What are the things that I turn the dial down to? Because it's not a switch, it's a dial. And when it gets to 11, I have the permission and the ability to turn it back down. That's how I kind of think about burnout.
0: I really like that. And it's also the word that keeps coming to my mind is you're saying about, it's like the intelligence to turn it from 11 down. When you start getting up to limits, that's like, all, those, the, all those, those people, those internal triggers, that's all intelligence speaking, going, going hey, let, just letting you know, you're going off the road. It's like the same as, as, as like the, the smart cars that like you're going off the road, it's gonna give you a ding. It's like, you want to listen to that. <laughs> no, I want to, I'm going in that direction. I'm gonna keep going. Well, you can do that, but you are going to crash. And that's what these factors are here to help you to do is stay on the path. And, and really that's, that's a big part of the, the key to our conversation today. You don't want to peak, you know, at 30, 35, at 40, at 45. Like, you don't want to be peaking. You want to be on the long journey. You can keep contributing for decades and decades. You look at someone like David McCullough. I called him up. I don't know David McCullough. I called him up. I spoke to his wife, which was lovely. Just thank him for his contributions. I mean, here is someone who, like, he was never trained as a historian. Every book he's written, and this is like two Pulitzer Prize winning books came out of his work. Uh, including 1776. My, one of my favorite books is uh, John Adams. Anyway, he's just made contributions all through his life. And so what you want is not to, I did everything and I won, but I killed myself for the long journey. You, you want to be in the game for 10 years, for 20, for 50, for, you know, you want to be making a contribution all through your life. Uh, and, and so I think that it's to how to operate today, not just to maximize and optimize this moment. To optimize the longer journey, I think that is, I think is 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 really is really important. Well,
3: and I would say, Greg, one of the things that I've seen you do because we've uh, we've had the chance to become friends, which has been really fun, um, is I told you I talked to another leader who studies leaders, and and um, I said, why do they implode? Why do leaders fall apart? Why do they blow up sometimes? And He said it's two things. One thing is it's isolation. They get isolated. They don't have a relationship. They're not connected. The way I say it is leaders who can't be questioned always end up doing questionable things. Mm -hmm. Like show me a leader who ended up doing something questionable. I'll show you somebody who couldn't be questioned. But the second thing he said was they have people that tend to fall apart, don't have life giving hobbies. They don't have a hobby that gives them life. And when I asked you that, that was evident. You said, okay, I love tennis, but you also said, I love my kids. My kids are my hobby. And I think sometimes that's not a side of somebody who has a book, who has a platform, whatever that we get to see. Um, and we joked that I've never met, you know, a 13 year old who said my dad wasn't around, but I have a really cool bike. Like, and it was worth it. Like this bike has front and rear shocks. Like, I don't know my dad. He doesn't know me because he was at the office hundred hours a week. I don't know my mom because she was at the office hundred hours a week, but I have a really cool bike. I think you've done a really deliberate hobby of being, part of your kids' lives. And so I, I'd love, you know, I know we're drawing to the end, but I think that's a side of you a lot of people don't get to see often. So I'd love you to talk about that a little bit.
0: So I had an interesting experience with this, actually. I went to a conference where one of the other speakers had an, as go through this exercise where you had to meet the person next to you and introduce yourself, right? Like give them the, you know, that awkward conversation, oh, what do you do, Right. And so the person asked me, what do you do? And I hate answering that question as it happens, but I, the answer I gave is I say, well, this is what I do. I'm married to Anna uh, and we have four children and I live in California. You know, and we just, that's what I shared. And, and then the second thing, the exercise was, so we didn't know what the second step was until we'd done the first. They said, okay, now go and Google the person you just spoke to, right? Because the idea was, does what they said that they do match their digital persona? So, it's like a marketing conversation, like, do you is is this an alignment? And so, normally, what they're trying to assess is is well, did the, the career they just stated actually is there any evidence of you have you made sure that your website and everything matches this? But in my case, because I'd answered it in a slightly different way, it was it was really insightful, but in a kind of opposite than intended way. And it was like, yeah, there's there's like no there's there's no family stuff out there. But that was a good moment for me. I thought that this is like a huge part of who I am, of what I do. It's more important to me than my professional work by a country mile. And so like, to me, when I say it's my hobby, it's like, yeah, this is where I want to be investing the time and the energy because this is what's essential. You know, in, in, in the, at the end of this life, when I'm not going to be sitting on my deathbed. Oh my goodness, I should I just respond more emails? You know, I i, they'll I talk about certain. your
3: books, they'll be like, man, he was on so many bestsellers lists, even USA Today. Like he was on that one. They, 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 so, they, they, like imma, even that imagine, one.
0: Imagine that when you are literally there in the hospital room. Like, what are they going to say? What what who's gonna what to was be- his
3: Amazon ranking? He put <laughs> up
0: in the top 10. I love that. I love that. Um, and and actually that's funny. That's funny because. Uh, there's a, I, I completely forgot about this because we enjoyed it so much, but I literally immediately before this thing got a call from my editor from Talia that it made the New York times bestseller list. So, Congrats. Thought,
3: that's so, amazing. That's, that's huge.
0: huge. <laughs> I just, actually that's a good way of combining the conversation because, because literally when it happened, my kids were unbelievable, but they are like this. They, they their culture is something really unique now. And, and like, they're all around me. We we grabbed a video of it. They're like, what is the news? What, what, what's happening? And so I tell them, um, and they just, the sound, the way they reacted, the sound was just electric. Uh, I love that. And I just thought, I just thought like, it was so precious to me that that was the reaction. I know, I know not all families are like that. And I know that, you know, I know that from my own personal experience too, that is it, it, it wasn't the same as this. And, and so like investing in them and in that relationship is just like, it feels like it's just beginning to pay dividends because, because now, and I'm not saying that life is always easy for us. There's plenty of disasters. We have plenty of stressful times and, and times when I just- flopped. I think a bunch of your kids smoke. I think I remember you saying that, like they're all
3: smokers, which is weird. <laughs> unfiltered, even unfiltered. Lucky strikes. You're a lucky strike family. We're talking right I get it. now. It's like it's like I used to think the teenage
0: life for the time when they were teenagers was going to be miserable. I really thought like, oh man, this is just this is going to be tough. And then we have our moments, but really, compared to what I thought it would be, it is. It is now. It it feels so much more effortless than I ever imagined it would be, uh, and that's because it is this because uh, because we, we just well we've been through hard times too. And times that unified us, and so we have that perspective and that that culture to be grateful in good times and bad, and so we just make a fuss. I mean, every night we che- we raise a glass, like we will literally do toasts almost every night at dinner, like whatever the success of the day has been. And so it's very in the culture. So it's not like competitive, and well, if that person gets a, a big cheer, then I'm I'm left out. Like there's a lot to go around here, uh, and so anyway, I somehow muddled my way through. No, um, it wasn't a model at all. I thought the news I think that's
3: the- a great place mm-hmm. for us to to put a pin in it. Cause Greg and I will talk for hours and hours because it's these are books we love. So I'm just I'm just appreciative that I got to be part of it. Really appreciate the next big idea club letting Greg and I come on and talk about this. Um, it's been a blast.
0: John, you, you made the sacrifice to be here. You didn't have to do this. I appreciate it so much. It's always so fun and super fun to do this. Sometimes, as we know, sometimes these things don't feel quite this effortless, this fun. And you've been you've been a delight. You made it easy. And of course, thank you. Huge thank you to everybody that's been here. Uh, I hope it has been useful. I hope it has been valuable. And, uh, and, and uh, if not that, a little entertaining along the way. Thank you, everybody.
1: Would you like to hear what Greg thinks are the five biggest ideas from Effortless? Download the Next Big Idea app and check out his book bite. It's fantastic. I've already shared it with a dozen friends. And why stop there? In our app, you'll find 12-minute summaries of hundreds of other groundbreaking new books, Zoom discussions with your favorite authors, and mind-blowing e-courses. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store. If you love what we're doing, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to share any thoughts on this and other episodes on Twitter. I'm at Ruf Grisk, that's at R-U-F-G-R-I-S-C. Special thanks to Greg McEwen and John Acuff. And thanks to Panio Gianopoulos, our editorial director here at the Next Big Idea Club for moderating the event. This show is effortless. Thanks to the incredible work of our team. Our executive producers are Caleb Bissinger and Michael Kavnat. Theme music by Costa Galanopoulos. Sound design by Mike Toda. I'm your host, Rufus Kriskem. See you next week.